welcome to episode 283 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was engineered on Sunday, 19th of September, 2021. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA. Jensen USA, where you will find a great selection of products at unbeatable prices with unparalleled customer service. Check them out at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast, and of course, I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast since 2006. For show notes, links, and other information, check out our website at www.the-spokesman.com. And now, here's my fellow host and producer, Carlton Reed and The Spokesman. I'm Carlton Reed, and one of the perks of my job is to get my mucky little paws on books before they're published. A few months back, I read the new book by US technology historian Peter Norton, and he promised me the first of what will be many media and podcast interviews. And this is it. Peter is an associate professor in the Department of Engineering and Society at the University of Virginia. You'll likely know him from his classic book, Fighting Traffic, The Dawn of the Motor Age in the American City. And as you'll soon hear, Peter only writes a book per decade, so it was a rare treat to get my hands on a pre-publication copy of Autonorama, a historically resonant warning about driverless cars and how the tech bros need to get cyclists and pedestrians out of the way. I got an early copy of Peter's book so I could write a cover blurb for it. Janet Sadiq Khan also penned one. The former commissioner of New York City's Department of Transportation wrote that Peter's book shows that safer, more livable cities will be achieved not by the tech in our cars, but by our actions on the streets. Amen to that. And here's Peter. Peter, I have, uh, I've had a copy of your book in, in digital form. Uh, it's a few weeks ago now when I read it. It was absolutely fascinating, uh, as I would expect, of course, from you. And then I was just looking now at the, the date of this book right now is going to be probably October-ish, I think, when it comes out. Uh, but that's 2021. Your last book, which I'd like to talk about first, actually, uh, was... 2011. So you're basically doing a book every 10 years. Is that right? Well, that's a that's a small data set for a trajectory plot there. Um, let, let me add also that my first book actually came out in 2008 and the paperback came out in 2011. So if you saw 2011, then, then uh, you saw the paperback. Um, so I don't know what my trajectory is. Uh, I do have another book project now, but I don't have an expected date for it to come out yet. Um, and, uh, you know, I, th since there's other work involved besides books, um, I don't, I'm not confident giving you a, a sort of mathematical projection. Well, we'll, we'll look forward to it in 2031. It'll be, it'll be worth the wait. Your third book. <laughs> okay. um, so, so what? What is? What? Tell us what you do. Then. Let, I mean, I, I could do this in the intro, of course, but why don't we hear it from the the man himself? So, what do you do when you're not writing books? 
most of the time I'm teaching, and that especially means grading papers. I have a lot of students, they write, and I read their work, and that's really the biggest part of my working time is is that. Um, and when that's not happening, then I really enjoy some of the other things that I get to do, like, for example, you know, talking to you is a, is a delight, <laughs> um, talking to other people. One of my favorite things is when a, an advocate of some kind comes along, somebody who thinks that walking should be normal or cycling should should could really uh, make a big difference in terms of sustainability and affordability. Um, when those people come along, transit advocates, uh, and they say that they find what I've done useful, well, that really brings me joy because, you know, they're the ones actually doing something. I just write about it. Because you are one of these authors uh, who will be uh, perennially uh, paraded, in effect, because what you wrote about, and I would like to talk about that, even if you've been on the show before, I, I think we absolutely should uh, we should talk about your, your first book and where you've come from, because that, that kind of feeds into the into this 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 next book, your new book. Um but you're you're paraded because you talked about something which happened in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, but it's absolutely still with us today. There's a, there's a, a dominance of a of a certain um, four wheeled thing. So fighting traffic brought into the public sphere that jaywalking is not a natural thing. It was an invention. So I, I don't want to pigeonhole your book to say that's all it's about, but you could say that's one of the, the good takeaways is it's, it's bringing that history of jaywalking, uh, being motordom creating that. That's why a lot of people quote your work. I think that's a, a useful way to sort of distill it down to something very elemental and, and concrete and specific, because um, while jaywalking is obviously just a very small part of the story. It really captures a lot of what has been missing from the story. Um, so the story that we get in the States especially is that uh, car domination, which you know is ubiquitous, uh, is the effect of mass demand, of a free market, of, um, of democracy, of, of values such as individualism and uh, freedom and so on. And sure, there have been critiques of that dominant narrative since automobiles began. Um, that's still the dominant story. Uh, the USA is a car culture. This is what people want. And, um, you know, in the end, they got what they wanted. And so, yeah, jaywalking says, well, now, hang on. Uh, there was a time when few people drove and um, walking in the street was normal, and that had to be denormalized. And um, once it was denormalized, well, then actually part of the motive for getting a car was that the alternatives were getting worse, not just the walking, but also uh, riding a streetcar, taking the bus, or, or riding your bike. All of those got harder, as they inevitably do when you have an environment that favors driving. And that that fact, of course, then complicates uh what it means when people say they prefer to drive. Well, you naturally prefer to drive when all of the alternatives have been, you know, impaired so much. So, yeah, I think, th I think that's a nice mm. way to capture the, the gist of fighting traffic. 
So I don't know how much this comes across in the US, but in here in the UK, we have this huge issue, and it, it, it does go mainstream now and again in, in the mainstream press, uh, low traffic neighborhoods. And then when you start t- talking to people who are very much uh, not in favor of, of low traffic neighborhoods, you just see this just amazing mindset. Of, they really cannot imagine not being able to get places in their car. And just a slight thing like putting bollards uh, in the way of, of where they're used to driving, they can still get into these these areas, but they've now got to drive a little longer. They use all sorts of, of arguments, uh, including, you know, well, how are disabled people going to get around? And they've never been interested when you look at their social media disabled people before, but they u- now use this. They also use air pollution. It's just, it seems to be such a favorite of people in favor of motoring. It's a strange one, but they talk about how cars, when they're standing still in traffic jams, are incredibly polluting. So we must have them moving freely, so free up the roads, and then we will have no more pollution. So these, these arguments come out just so frequently. It's been taken on board uh, by th- these people so, so carefully, and they regurgitate this. But there's just no imagination of a life without a car. So how on earth, Peter, are we going to have a different future when there are an enormous amount of people, probably even worse where you are, who really cannot imagine a future without automobiles? Well, Carlton, there's a word you used, I think, three times in that question, uh, imagine or imagination, and I think that's exactly the key. Um, So uh, a failure to imagine um, is uh, exactly, you know, first of all, I I should say that the people who wanted to sell us car dependency recognized that imagination is essential, and they helped us imagine futures where car dependency is liberating. And they were extremely good at it. And I think we have a lot to learn from the Mm. people who sold us car dependency about how you make different futures imaginable because they excelled at it. Now, um, when you have generations growing up in a car-dependent environment, well, it's not too surprising that, uh, you know, if, if that vehicle that they depend on, literally depend on, is threatened, now this becomes um, a source of anger or opposition to, uh, to, to uh, even an elementary reform like putting in a bollard to make a space more accommodating to anything except driving. So, um, yeah, th- that opposition is, is there, and yet at, at the same time, uh, we know from hard-earned experience from the past that that these kinds of obstacles can be overcome. I think one way to do it is to frame it correctly. So you can frame um, the change we need to make as taking away driving, but we can also frame it as giving people choices. Um, it's a it's an interesting uh, fact that the Netherlands ranks very highly on. Uh, places where people like to drive. I got a top rating on that um, from um, uh, Mm. some uh, app company. But um, at the same time, you have choices. And I think one of the reasons why 
the Netherlands scores high on places to drive is that the people who are driving are driving by choice. They don't have to drive there. And um, that takes off everybody off the road who is there by compulsion and makes the, you know, the driving experience an experience of choice. Well, if we give people choices, then, um, you know, we, I mean, we can frame this as now you can choose to walk. Now you can choose to ride a bike. And yes, even now you can choose um, to drive. So that, that's another possibility. I'd like to offer one more, um, which is that when it became quite clear that uh, cigarette smoking was shortening people's lives, often by multiple decades, and this is going back to the 60s especially, um, the tobacco companies were very good at framing that as a threat to people's preferred way of living. And their advertising helped delay the transition by presenting cigarette addiction as pleasurable. And what people gradually figured out, at least most people, is that even more pleasurable than enjoying a cigarette when you're addicted to a cigarette is not being addicted at all. And of course, that transition from a state of addiction to a state of non-addiction is is a very uh, difficult one. Um, but in the end, that destination of being addiction-free has a liberating feel, and that extends even to being uh, free of your car dependency, as long as you have the alternatives that you need for that to work. So your, your latest book uh, is very much extrapolating forward on, on car dependency. Um, let's, let's, let's go into the book. First of all, it, well, it's called Autonorama. Why the no bit? Why is it Autonorama and not Autorama? Well, it could be Autorama because Autorama was the name of some shows, uh, automobile shows that were put together in the USA in the mid-20th century. You know, this all goes back to the word diorama. You make something vivid, three-dimensional, experiential. I mean, this is an immersive experience before, you know, video games gave us immersive experiences. There were these giant shows um, and the uh, the American automobile companies, in particular General Motors, excelled um, at these shows. And uh, General Motors hit, hit on this um, in the biggest way back in the late 30s when they developed a famous show called Futurama, uh, combining the words future and diorama. Mm -hmm. It's like you were traveling to the future. This was their way of making a future of car dependency both vivid and apparently liberating because, after all, it's a model. It doesn't have to really work. And um, now, to get to the word autonorama, which is you know how I choose to pronounce it. I can't correct your pronunciation because it's not even a word. I just made it up. But when we in in two thousand, <laughs> no, Peter, yeah. Peter say, say it again. Say it again, so I get it right. Uh, say it again, so I get it right. The way I say it is autonorama, which is like autonomous okay, plus okay. futurama. Yes, right. Yes. So it's just a matter okay. of strength, and because autonomous driving does come a lot into into the book. So yes, and so autonorama is a fusion of autonomous and futurama, and I'm claiming in the book that this is the fourth generation of a sales spectacle of um, a futuristic fantasy that's being presented to us to influence us and to frankly deceive us about the feasibility of car dependency. 
Um, and so the, the book argues that there have been really four waves of this, each about 25 years apart. So roughly 1940, 1965, 1990, and 2015. And in each one of the, these waves, we're presented with a the mm. people presenting these spectacles recognize the power of imagination and they help us imagine these futures, not in ways that are realistic, but then in ways that are persuasive and attractive. So it's called Autonorama because I'm trying to argue that while it looks like the last 10 to 20 years of this futuristic spectacle has been about something that's fundamentally new. I think it's really the same show. It's it's a retread of a show we've been seeing for over 80 years. It's and what makes it seem new each time is it's dressed up with technology that's brand new. And to this time above all it's machine learning, lidar and so on. But um, it's it. What what matters isn't so much the technology, but just that the technology is new enough and dazzling enough to lead us to drop our skepticism a little and and believe that anything's possible. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke said, "A one." Do you not think that? Go ahead. The, sorry, mm-hmm. sorry, sorry, Peter. The I, the, the, the skepticism. Uh, wasn't there say four or five years ago in in the mainstream um i just i just get much more um inkling from the press now that that there just seem to be more skepticism so people like you and me who have been skeptical about autonomous vehicles for a number of years are now becoming a bit more uh, mainstream and it's things like you know even just recently at the um at the paralympics in in japan where you know a certain form of autonomous bus <laughs> ran into a a blind athlete well, these these things are just terrible, terrible stories. And then the head of Toyota comes out and says, "Well, you know, autonomous vehicles—they clearly haven't got a future." Certainly, of the, the, the current technology. So, do you think the technologies and the, the, the sorry the the skepticism around the technologies is catching up to where it should be, which is these technologies are nowhere near ready for for human consumption. Yes, in other words, uh, the the degree of of the extravagant promises that were ubiquitous five years ago uh, are scarcer now, and the and the promises are more modest now. But what hasn't changed is the same basic claim, which is that the technology is coming. It may take a little longer than we thought, but it is coming, and it's the technology that will determine what we do not we who will determine what the technology does. And companies are very smart about adapting to these, um, you know, these disappointing or the, these broken promises and the disappointing news, like the one you just referenced from the Olympics, the Paralympics. Um, and for example, right now, Waymo has been building up a reputation for itself as the people who are actually today in 2021, every day of the week, delivering um, fully autonomous driving or, or riding experiences in Arizona. And this uh, way of 
framing it, in other words, we're doing it right now, is deployed in a way to sort of uh, expose people like me and you as the uh, Luddite naysayers that, that, um, you know, they would like to to characterize (laughs) us as. In other words, Mm. they'll say, you know, um, Mm. somebody will say, well, you know, can this ever really happen? And Waymo says, we're doing it right now. It's, it's, bogus for a lot of reasons um, that you already know, but um, it, it's rhetorically very effective when they can say we're doing it right now. What are they doing? What are Waymo, what are Waymo claiming and, and not able to actually stack up? Yeah, so Waymo can, in fact, pick you up uh, in Chandler, Arizona, um, and then take you to another destination in Chandler, Arizona, in a vehicle that has no driver, including no so-called safety driver, the the person who you know is there to supervise the vehicle and take over in the event of a of an emergency. There's not even that now. Of course, the vehicle is under constant uh, monitoring, and and the passengers are in close communication and so on. But it really is autonomous in that specific sense that there's nobody operating the vehicle who is in the vehicle. Now, I think this is uh, a sort of um, elaborate uh, Potemkin village in the sense that, um, first of all, the vehicle is is extremely expensive. Um, I understand uh, from one source that each one costs about $200,000. Um, and of course, then the, the operation costs, the overhead are very, is very, very expensive as well. And this is all because it's operated at a loss by Alphabet Incorporated, the company that owns Google. And, you know, this is, this is, in other words, they're paying a lot of money to get a claim of credibility across. It's not a profitable business model or anything close. Also, what makes Waymo possible is that it operates in a, um, I'm, I was about to say town, but it doesn't, it hardly is recognizable as a town in a, in an semi-urban environment in which there are almost no pedestrians because it's so unwalkable. The streets are enormously wide. <laughs> uh, you know, there's ample, there's a left turn, you know, two or three left turn lanes, right turn lanes everywhere you go. Um, the visibility is always good because it's uh, Arizona. It's always sunny. Um, in other words, they have to have a highly contrived environment. And this, to me, is another repeat of history, because to make car dependency work, the environments, urban environments had to be completely reconstructed just so you could move each person in their own 100 square feet of, of automobile space and park them when they got there. And so what Waymo is proposing implicitly, they're not saying this, of course, is sort of rebuilding America again, or the world again, around what the vehicle needs instead of around what people need. Um, Now, I know you have uh, a lot more that you could probably offer about what what makes Waymo more an illusion than a reality, and I'd love to hear it, but... um, there's a, there's a public relations angle though that that's quite spectacular as well, and public relations has been a constant with this for over eighty years as well. Um, an extremely influential public intellectual named Malcolm Gladwell has a podcast that's hugely popular, and he has an episode called "I Love You Waymo," and it really presents Waymo as delivering us from every 
imagined and real evil in the urban environment, it's 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 really the vehicle as a magical deliverance again, um, presented by a very uh, eloquent and appealing uh, intellectual in a way that makes it seem credible. Um, so that's uh, you know an illustration of the fact that public relations is a really big part of this, as it always has been. So yes, we we haven't got conditions like. Uh... Uh, uh, Chandler, Arizona, across here, we have snow. <laughs> we have lots, lots of, you know, rain. We have conditions that autonomous vehicles really, really struggle in, and probably will always struggle in, unless you chip everything. I mean, that that's got to be, you know, if you can't use lidar for everything, if you can't use uh, all the fancy cameras for everything, but you can chip things. And then not run into the lampposts because it's got a chip in, and 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 ditto for the pedestrian and the cyclist. Um, do, do you think that's where uh, it's a natural conclusion? That's that's where the, the technologies have to go. They have to say, well, okay, we can't see everything, but if we just chip your your cap, if we just chip your trousers, if we just chip your phone, if we just chip everything, then everything will be fantastic. Future will be fantastic if we chip everything. Yeah, I, that's certainly what we're we're hearing often implicitly, sometimes imp- explicitly, that, that this is where we have to go to make this work. And um, that's sort of inevitably embedded into a, an unstated assumption that seems to be persistent here, which is that technology is, and I quote, a solution. When technology is presented as a solution, well, then you have to. You it makes sense to do almost anything to uh, put it to work and and to to make it happen. And I think this is a really elementary mistake. Um, and I I think we need to um, you know reject this notion that technology equals solution. Uh, you know, technology is just a what four syllable way to say tool. And once you recognize that technology is a tool, then I think we much more quickly appreciate that technology is something we choose for purposes we choose, at least correctly understood it is. Um, It's when it's presented as a solution that it starts to make sense to go to absurd, expensive, uh, elaborate lengths to find some way to make it work. So, for example, to make a... And a so-called autonomous vehicle work in the rain or the snow. Yeah, we we might get there with another decade or two or three of expensive high-end research and development in the latest technology. Um, that I, I I'm a skeptic about autonomous vehicles, but I agree that that may well be possible. But I think that's the wrong question. The question isn't is that theoretically possible. The question is does that make sense? If we can have, if we if people can get around in cities with snow and rain, without uh, ten or twenty years of expensive R and D, maybe that's what we should you know do about it. Uh, it, it, it it's almost it's almost incre- it, I, I'm laughing too. It's almost incredible how we will go to such in- elaborate lengths to solve problems at the high-tech end of the spectrum only when we could solve them at the low-tech end uh, or, or already do solve them um, at the low-tech end. There's a uh, an expression I've taken to using with students where my students are all engineering students. 
And so I draw a line at the, on the board and at one end I write high tech and at the other end I write low tech. And I circle the high tech end and I say, if you're only looking at the high tech end, you may be missing something really useful uh, at the low tech end. And to help them overcome the bias against low tech, I say, why don't we call this high soch? Like if it's high tech, then high social or high soch would be the, the better counterpoint rather than low tech, which sounds like, uh, you know, uh, something primitive or um, uh, simple. Mm. So I think we're missing the low tech end of the spectrum. It's not being a Luddite to say it has a lot to value. A lot we can value in it. And often the low tech end can help us make the high tech end work. Um, you know, the, a lot of the most useful systems we can have in the world combine high tech and low tech instead of uh, pitting them against each other. There is a technology, Peter, that you mentioned in Fighting Traffic, your first book, and you mentioned it in this book. And I believe we've even discussed it before. Uh, but that is the speed governor, so the speed limiter. So this is technology that um, you would think would be a, a preamble, a precursor, I should say, really, to autonomous driving. If we're really going to have autonomous driving, well, the next stage should be let's 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 take over some of the take away some of the human element and put speed governors in cars. Uh, and that technology, as you've discussed it in 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 both books is not exactly brand new. You've been able to have speed governors, speed limiters since early 1900s. So why haven't we gone to that stage? Why why are we missing out quite a critical stage, which would actually have unbelievable speed um, safety benefits if you had every car, GPS, speed tracked, or in previous technologies, just literally speed governed? Well, you know, the, the uh, early version of that, the speed governor... Um, from the 1920s, which uh, a lot of city people in America were calling for as a way to make streets for pedestrians, um, uh, a device that would make it impossible to drive faster than 25 miles per hour. Um, I think there's a lot to be learned from why that was so zealously fought by the automobile interest groups. And I, I'm pretty confident I know why, because I read their own uh, statements to each other. And mm. in, in effect, they said, People have to pay a lot of money for a car, and that means they want it to do something that other vehicles don't, and that one thing that cars do best relative to the other vehicles of that era is go fast. And so if you make it impossible for the car to go faster than, say, an, a, an electric streetcar, well, then people will just keep taking the electric streetcar. Why would they uh, you know, pay a lot of money for uh, an automobile. And I think that basic reason is still with us. Um, I, I mean, one of the biggest obstacles to, uh, among many obstacles to the autonomous vehicle future that's being sold to us, is that an autonomous vehicle can be extremely safe if it doesn't matter how fast or slow it goes. Um, but you know the the people who want to make a go of this in a business sense know that no one will pay money to ride in an autonomous vehicle that has an average speed of eight or ten miles an hour. <laughs> so the you know the speed is 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 you know essential from a business point of view. In the U.S. in particular, it also was sort of built in to our urban geography it, because of engineering standards. Um, I mean. 
to an American audience, often the first objection I'll get when I criticize car dependency is people will say, well, it's a big country with long distances. And this is, of course, a, a kind of a silly claim because what the distance that matters is not the distance from one coast to the other coast. The distance that matters is the distance between your home and your workplace or your home and your school or the shop and your home or whatever it is, those distances. And those distances can be extremely short. But um, in the U.S., our, our, our highway engineers, when they looked at, at the fact that uh, the time it takes you to get your, to your destination is the product of two factors, namely the distance and your speed, the only factor they actually worked into their calculations was speed. In other words, they never bothered with the distance. They never made any serious effort to ask, how can we keep our destinations close enough together that it will save you time on your way to work? Instead, they said, how can we get you uh, traveling faster? Now, it's the same problem. How much time does it take you to get to work? But they chose to attack it only from one side of that equation and not from the other. And because they committed themselves, they made it a public responsibility to fight what they called delay, delay being traveling slower than the speed limit, then every time you were delayed, the problem had to be solved at public expense by adding new highway capacity that would let you go the speed limit again. And as a consequence of all of that, we already have destinations so far apart that you cause anxiety when you tell people that uh, we may need a future where you go slower. Your, your definition, when, when you're saying you know, use high soch instead of you know, low tech, that's kind of interesting and worthwhile. It doesn't seem to be something that people would tend to, to use, apart from, of course, uh, advocates, because you, you mentioned a phrase before, or a, a term, Luddites. So, you know, autonomous vehicles, speed even, um, and capacity of roads and making roads fit for whatever car, whatever motor vehicle is on the road at the time, for instance, Tesla's now. Uh, this is all progress. And Peter, what you're doing, and if you say things like, well, we could use public transport and we could use bicycles and we could walk, that's anti-progress. That's not moving forward. We already have got that. What's interesting about that? It's a great question, and it's actually one of the reasons why I thought, why don't we call low-tech high-soch, uh, because then we can sort of try to characterize social techniques like, for example, letting a grocery store open up in a single-family residency-zoned neighborhood, which is illegal in most of America. That would be, uh, I would call that a high social technique, high because it's effective and social because there's no technology involved in it. Now, yeah, it's, you can't excite people about high social the way you can um, about high tech. But I do think we've got some good precedents for it. Um, as you know from uh, Autonorama, one of my inspirations is Rachel Carson and Silent Spring. And her book was highly critical of the high-tech uh, chemical pesticides of her era. And yet it was a huge bestseller and really changed 
particularly gardeners' practices, and also changed the law such that DDT was illegal within about eight years of her book coming out, which is a really amazing accomplishment. So, um, mm. and I think it helped that that she offered an, another highly prized ideal. So instead of the ideal of state-of-the-art technology, she gave her book a title that invokes another ideal, which is the ideal of, uh, you know, Silent Spring is a reference to a future where there are no songbirds because of chemical pesticides. Well, there are equivalents of that for urban mobility, like, you know, a future where we can have parks that you can walk to, we can have playgrounds that your children can walk to safely without you having to drive them to the playground, children going to school. These are attractive images, uh, like songbirds are, um, that you know, high tech incidentally can help us get to because there's a place for high tech in a sustainable, livable future. There's a vital place for high tech in that. But it's then again a question of making sure that we are the ones choosing the tech that we need for our chosen purposes and not, and we don't turn into people sort of waiting for tech to happen to us, which is how it's getting framed right now. Are you worried about the? apple car because that you know every time they they do apple do take on a technology they they pretty much transform it in their own making and make it incredibly popular or do you think they will be burnt just as as other companies have have actually been burnt in this 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 space because clearly they they've lost uh, an executive just recently uh, has gone to another company ford i think um and and they you know haven't brought out this this this, this much vaunted car despite working on it for a long time so do you worry about apple or is it thing you've you've got no real worries well i do worry about all of these companies including apple and maybe apple in particular for the reasons that you mentioned they're very good at this um you know the iphone is something that people feel an attachment for which is unlike you know the phones we remember as kids which you were strictly you know utilitarian objects um, I also worry because uh, not just Apple, but also the, the companies that get apps onto your phone are very good at commanding our attention. And a lot of the thinking around autonomous vehicles right now is that they can be profitable if they're really massive data collectors. And uh, that's what has made the iPhone profitable for many companies. And it can uh, also make uh, a sort of Apple car what some people in the industry call the ultimate mobile device, a device we will be as attached to um, as our phones. Now, part of your question is, uh, you know, will this, will they actually succeed at this? And um, I actually don't think autonomous vehicles will ever succeed at being anything like what they're represented as to us as as something you know you'll be able to summon it anywhere every any time and it will take whisk you away to your destination right away the way all the public relations shows but the fact that i don't think that's possible um i i don't want that to distract us from the fact that the pursuit of that goal can be really really destructive in other words you may never get to the goal but the destruction in the wake of that effort could be profound. And 
I mean, I think history is trying to teach us that because in America, we've been pursuing a city where you can drive anywhere at any time without delay and park for free when you get there. We've never achieved that city, and yet we've never stopped pursuing it. And in pursuing it, we have really destroyed uh, the pre-automotive cities of America and turned the post-automotive cities into kind of car-dependent, energy-wasteful, uh, vast expanses of pavement. So I think we could we could repeat history. We're at risk of repeating history because the unachievable promise of the autonomous vehicle may lure us along a path of extravagant spending, overuse of energy, uh, carbon emissions. I mean, the list goes on. Peter, many people, and this is where the Luddite comes in, uh, many people have said, you know, technologies will be uh, unachievable and then lo and behold, they become achievable um, and the Luddites are, are, are proven wrong. Um, and before you said something about uh, choice and how uh, if only you had the choice of a form of transport, so in the Netherlands you've got lots of choice and you, you, you choose whichever uh, transport mode you want, whereas in other countries, you know, there's really only, it's, it's monolithic, there's only one um, um, transport choice really because that's been designed but autonomous vehicles if they get it right and if we are wrong uh, and where we are proven to be luddites and an apple uh, miraculously in a, in a year's time 18 months time comes out with a product that is just genuinely the real deal isn't that something that could potentially make bicycling and walking perhaps not public transport, but certainly those two modes, that could be a golden age for those modes because uh, you get rid of the nut behind the wheel. You get rid of the most dangerous part of the motor vehicle, and that's the human driver. So surely, why is you, as a technology uh, intellectual, a technology academic, why are you not saying, we can do this, but maybe have parameters in? So we, we steer in a certain direction. That's a wonderful question and so rich in possibilities about, about how to approach it. Um, so, I mean, first of all, in any book about the future and autonorama, although most of the actual text is about the past, that's there to help us get the future right. So the book I think of is fundamentally being about the future. And I think every author of such a book has to admit they may be wrong. And I... I admit I may be wrong about autonomous vehicles, but um, I think um, I think the weight of evidence is overwhelmingly on the side that says, uh, first of all, autonomous vehicles technologically probably can't deliver what's been promised for them or even anything close to it. But secondly, that even if they can deliver, they won't be uh, um, something that will say make walking and cycling more pleasant due to the fact that the autonomous vehicle will not be driven by a human nut behind the wheel, but instead will be driven by a, uh, an emotionless program that will never uh, take a, uh, uh, an excessive chance against, uh, say, a pedestrian or a cyclist's life. Um, there was a, a, an article that came out maybe uh, three or four years ago by uh, Adam Millard Ball, where he concluded, and it, the conclusion he presented the conclusion with extremely high confidence, 
that autonomous vehicles will return streets to pedestrians and cyclists and even children playing games because uh, the vehicle will be programmed to avoid injuring those people at any cost, really. And here's that to me, this is a perfect illustration of why we have to study history or we will get the future wrong. Um, and incidentally, uh, Malcolm Gladwell was inspired by that article to conclude the same thing and to publicize that that claim for millions of people. And I'm, you know, I think it's very regrettable that he did that because the claim is indefensible. Um, for the following reason, um, people will not pay anything to ride in a vehicle that will apply the brakes and wait patiently for every single obstacle in their path. And, and incidentally, it wouldn't just be braking for an actual pedestrian child or cyclist. It would have to brake for anything that had, I don't know, a one-tenth of one percent chance of being one of those things. And if that's the threshold, which is what it would have to be for that vision to come true, autonomous vehicles would either be mostly stopped in cities and therefore no one would pay a penny to ride in one, or they would operate only in wastelands like Chandler, Arizona, where no one walks anyway. Mm. So those two alternatives, I think, are equally unlikely. And here's here's where history comes in. Well, that, Go ahead. Well, th- well, there's your future. The future is every single place in the world looking like Chandler, Arizona. In other words, you get rid of the pedestrians, you get rid of the cyclists, because they're the ones holding back progress, Peter. Exactly. And and Carlton, I do believe that's possible. In other words, it is possible that they'll that to make these things work, they will, you know, they being policymakers, engineers, uh, corporate interest groups, and so on, they will make sure that um, these vehicles have an unobstructed right of way. So I, I think history really needs to be brought in at this point. So when automobiles were new on city streets, and I believe this is a, as true in the UK as here, it's just that it happened earlier here. Uh, at first, the law, um, the social norms, the pu- prevailing public opinion, um, the engineering standards, uh, all of those things were on the pedestrian side. They were on the cyclist side. If a motorist hit a pedestrian in an American city street in 1920, the motorist was in serious trouble, even if the pedestrian was crossing in the middle of the block without really paying attention. So by the thesis that says that, uh, you know, when, when the system uh, is... Um, designed with such that the pedestrian comes first, that automatically you have a pedestrian's paradise, ne- neglects the fact that the laws, the engineering standards, the social norms, and so on, are all subject to change from the groups with the most at stake and with the most influence. So motordom's response, uh, the automotive interest group's response to the fact that their drivers were getting into deep legal trouble and deep financial trouble every time they hit a pedestrian and to the fact that the newspapers were were demonizing vehicles and their drivers wasn't to say, well, we have to make cars that only go 10 miles an hour or something like that. Their response was to change the social norms. Uh, the jaywalking campaigns were part of that, to change the laws 
and to change the engineering standards such that now, you know, a, in a typical American city or suburb, a pedestrian wouldn't even dare try sometimes to even exercise their legal right at the typical American crosswalk, uh, especially on the fringes of a city, you see people waiting patiently at a marked crosswalk where they have the right of way uh, while uh, drivers uh, just race on through. So I think you're going to see the same thing with autonomous vehicles. In other words, the autonomous vehicles, will there will be ways to make sure the pedestrian gets out of the way. Might be an obnoxious noise or a flashing light. Could even conceivably be cameras that ultimately have uh, mm. facial recognition in them. They'll make sure that the laws are a certain well, way. China already does that, isn't it? They, That's right. The, the Chinese already have that. They, they have that right now. You, if you if you jaywalk, you you can be you know instantly fined. Right. So China um, decided at some point they wanted a national automobile industry, and suddenly the you know when you have a an authoritarian country like China, the that can be a, a policy that's implemented quite quickly. They promoted that industry in part by becoming uh, changing from a country where everybody cycled to everything into a country where it's hard to walk safely and where you're treated like uh, uh, you know an enemy of the state if you if you um, exercise a little resourcefulness just to get across the street and that may I hadn't thought of that uh, illustration but that may be the ideal illustration for why the Malcolm Gladwell Adam Millard ball thesis won't stand up. I think uh, the other illustration is historical. Do you know, I've never actually thought about this because it, it, this autonomous driving is very much a tech bro thing. It's very much Silicon Valley, uh, Google, um, Apple now. We've talked about them. We haven't talked about China. Uh, do you know, is this something that's ever come up on your your LiDAR? Um, uh, China, what, what is China doing with autonomous vehicles? You, you, you know, they're ahead in so many other ways. If this was a viable technology, you'd think they would be at least equal to the Silicon Valley tech bros or potentially even further afield, especially because there are, as you said, there are authoritarian country. They can do what the hell they like with their streets, whereas you know, in some respects, even in automotive-dependent USA and, and, and then the UK, there's still going to be some kickback. Whereas in China, there's going to be no kickback. If they want to do the whole system where it's going to be autonomous vehicles – they can do autonomous vehicles. Well, I'm not uh, privy to a lot about what's going on there besides what, you know, I can pick up fairly easily in journalism, but um you know, there's there's strong indications that they want to be leaders in autonomous vehicles. They clearly want to be leaders in electric vehicles and that's going um you know, very much mm. their way. Um the uh, an example I spent some time on in the in the book is a 2010 movie that was co-produced by General Motors China and its Chinese partner, uh, SAIC, used to be Shanghai Automotive Industries uh, Corporation. Um, they presented a vision of Shanghai in 2030 where autonomous vehicles are really almost the only mode of transportation. And it creates a perfect paradise by the way of absolutely sustainable seamless mobility from every point to every point <laughs> um now i don't know if that vision which you know is clearly 
from a Chinese corporation, um, SAIC, uh, if that is in part influenced by a uh, an agenda of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, but I think we would both be very surprised if they aren't working very hard at being leaders in in this field. Um, maybe not so much in the vehicle, if not in the vehicles themselves, then in the technology the world would need to have these vehicles. I can imagine they would also chip everybody. <laughs> Literally, you know, we, we worry about right. this. It's like, oh, you know, we're going to have to have chips on our phones. And then, of course, we'll have to have chips and, you know, embedded in our skin. Well, in China, that wouldn't be a problem. Yeah, everybody who's born, there's your chip. And then all of a sudden, you've got a system where, yeah, China has got autonomous vehicles, no problem, because everybody is Well, sick. yeah, what wouldn't be a, a, a better dream come true for an authoritarian regime than to have not only chipped people, but they're also traveling in vehicles that can be tracked, their location is known at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it really is an authoritarian's dream come true. Which, of course, is ironic because car dependency was sold on the claim that it was personally liberating. Uh, you talk in your, in your book about transport sufficiency. What's, what's transport sufficiency? Um, I'm presenting transport sufficiency as the alternative to a sort of transport perfection. Now, obviously, perfection sounds more attractive than sufficiency, but that um, comparison changes when you recognize that transport perfection is actually never achieved. It's frequently invoked and frequently promised because that has a way of opening up wallets, of opening up public money for roads and so on. But it's never actually achieved. And the result is actually kind of worse than transport sufficiency because in the pursuit of transport perfection, you get uh, all kinds of nuisances that are, you know, worse than transport sufficiency and that are ubiquitous in the US, such as, for example, you know, buses, if they come at all, come once an hour or something like that, or walking means walking next to a six-lane highway and having no place to cross and so on. So transport sufficiency is saying, well, if we forego perfection, then we have possibilities that are actually very attractive. This, incidentally, is another case where I want to give the credit to Rachel Carson, also to, to uh, Jane Jacobs, who were saying very much the same thing. They didn't use the, that vocabulary. But Rachel Carson, for example, w- was in effect saying, if you give up the dream of, say, pest-free agriculture, where you have no insect pests at all, then you can actually do some quite wonderful things, you know, by uh, crop rotation, varying your crops, uh, you know, finding the suitable, um, the crop, right crop for that uh, environment and so on. Uh, Jane Jacobs was offering a version of that same kind of message, namely um, the perfectionist visions of the planners was never really achievable and the pursuit of it was destructive. But if we sort of agree that it's okay to have, you know, uh, a mix of, of building stock, some of which may be a little decayed. And it's okay if we have people who sometimes find it frustrating on the sidewalk because there's so many people walking and so on. If we accept those things as part of the deal, well, then we can take, take that as a serious possibility as an alternative that looks very attractive compared to the pursuit of a perfection we never actually 
approach. Also in your book, I'm, I'm, what I'm going to do now, I'm going to pick out bits mm-hmm. because I, I'm lucky enough to have been um, sent a, an advanced copy and I've, I've, I've read it and I've picked out bits. So I'm, I'm now going to just pick out bits and, and, and throw them at you and you've got to explain <laughs> them to me, to us, to everybody mm-hmm. who's listening to this. So you wrote, a city optimized for drivers keeps not only drivers dissatisfied, but everyone else too. So explain that one. Well, this is actually related to the previous point, namely uh, a city optimized for drivers is ultimately unachievable for the simple reason that um, once you make an environment that's very inviting to drivers and driving and very welcoming to drivers and driving, it becomes an environment where people who are doing other things, getting around by other means, on foot, on bike, by bus, whatever – uh, they have to become drivers too, because an environment that's very friendly and inviting to drivers basically compels everyone to be a driver or to turn into a sort of second-class citizen who is like a uh, has to be resourceful and take chances just to get around. And the the consequence of that is, of course, that then you ha- end up with m- many more drivers than you planned for, and then you have to expand the capacity even more. And even once everyone's a driver, and you know, there's plenty of American cities where probably more than 95% of people are getting around only by car and by nothing else. Um, even in, in a, a city built for those people, well, then you have other effects that kick in, like, for example, the fact that um, you will find that you can live further from work and maybe save yourself a rent or get yourself a, a lower price on your house if you choose to live another 10, 20, 30 miles from your daily destinations, which in turn means more total driving. Uh, it means more people coming into the city from a wider radius of origin points and that all needing a place to park their vehicle all day. And so it's a kind of a treadmill where the more you accommodate drivers, the more driving there is and therefore the more effort you have to take to accommodate them and you know if you the ultimate example of this would be Houston Texas where if you you know do a google image search for Katy freeway which is interstate 10 near Houston mm-hmm. you see i think it's now mm-hmm. 26 lanes of congested traffic which which is <laughs> it, it 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 makes the most dystopian dystopian uh, science fiction seem uh you know mundane by comparison so it's 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 an absurdity um and you know that's the point i was just trying to make but 28 lanes will fix it that's right <laughs> 28 lanes that's right will fix yeah. it. one, more, one lane more lane will fix it we're just we're just looking for that sweet spot exactly yeah <laughs> one more lane is what it will take so both you, you, you so you and i we, we, we our research interests often coincide. Mm-hmm. Um, mine from the UK angle, and you from the US angle. Um, but they often talk about or look at eventual dystopias. And and but you, when you're reading the literature of the 1920s and 1930s, it's full of optimism. And 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 ditto for for here. So I'm I'm currently reading lots and lots of literature uh, from that time where motoring was going to be perfection. It was you know we, we weren't going to ever reach. Um, a, 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 a congestion that, that's never talked about. It's all just this, this, this freedom that the motor car is going to bring. Now we read this 
you know, as you know, as as we know what actually happened. Um, so we have got the the benefit of 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 knowing what's happened, and they clearly didn't. They were just dreaming the future. But is that basically where we're coming? Where where the grouches here? Where <laughs> where the, the the boring old luddites, or not even luddites? Where the, where the boring old um, people pointing out that yes, you can have this technology, but it won't actually do what you say it's gonna it, it, it's gonna do, and we just have to look at history to kind of prove that. In all this optimism, now really everybody's just stuck in traffic. You, you yes, this 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 is a freedom machine. If you're the only one driving it, as soon as everybody else has this fantastic technology, it ceases to be practical. Quite so. Um, you you were reminding me of a word that might be applied to both of us as well. That's very common, maybe more here than there. Naysayers, we're the naysayers. Uh, but yeah, certainly if you compare the utopian. <laughs> visions of the 30s or the 40s or the 50s with what we have now, it is profoundly disappointing. Um, I I think this compels us to ask, why do we keep falling for these (laughs) techno-futuristic fantasy lands that can't be achieved? Hmm. And uh, that that was a question that was very important to me in uh, Autonorama. Uh, Why do we keep falling for these things? And of course, one of the arguments in Autonorama is that we actually do get skeptical after each wave of these things. There's a credibility gap that sets in uh, that doesn't ever really put an end to the techno-futuristic fantasies, but does make them um, subside. And I think the thing that gives them renewed credibility each time is the, the salesmen come along and say, well, look at this amazing new technology. We didn't have that before. We have it now, and therefore, what happened before is irrelevant. This is new. Uh, This is um, one of the epigraphs for one of the chapters quotes Arthur C. Clarke, who says, uh, every new technology uh, at first is indistinguishable from magic. And that's because it really is um, inexplicable to, to people who haven't seen it perform before. It's astonishing. Um, machine learning is is like that right now, and um, yet, you know, when when the astonishment that these technologies rightly um, inspire uh, gets applied to make us believe futures that are both undesirable and unachievable, well, then then we're being manipulated again. That that sort of reminded me of a like a, a visual joke, and like you know, do you know, punch. Punch, they're like the oh, satirical yes, mm-hmm. uh, magazine yep. in the UK. I'm, I'm pretty sure it, it, it's from them. So it's there's a there's an illustration of a horse and cart, a drunk farmer, and I'm sure this has been used in the US as well. I'm sure you'll be familiar with this trope. But the the the, the farmer is drunk, leaning back, uh, in effect asleep in the in the back of his um, his vehicle of the day, his carriage of the day, driven by a horse. But the horse could actually get him home from the pub. So these technologies of, of autonomous vehicles have actually been with us before. You, you you would just have the horse would take you home from the pub drunk. So nothing that they're really dreaming up now are uh, something that we couldn't have done using other forms of technology previously. And you kind of make that point in the book where you say, and I'm, I'm quoting you here, uh, um, where were we at? Yeah. Uh, walkability, 
cycle routes and basic transit are so much less expensive that even if we diverted only 10% of the funds now going to building, maintaining and policing roads and and the the future of these roads uh, means we could actually start to see beneficial trends in a year or two, never mind in 10, 20 years. So that's where we need to be brave and actually funding technologies that work, that are proven to work, but maybe not sexy. I love the way you put it. In fact, uh, that opening um, analogy uh, really ought to give us pause because that farmer's horse got the farmer home even if there was an inch of snow and it was sleeting uh, and it was night. Uh, all of which would have made it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a technical nightmare to sort out uh, at the best high tech companies R and D divisions today. It, it's true that you know the resources necessary just to make walking practical and cycling practical and to give people more reliable and better bus service and so on are not that significant, and it would finally give us a chance to even be able to guess at what people prefer. The the transportation departments here are constantly saying, and I, I know this from their own reports, uh, they, they equate what people are doing with what people prefer, even though people don't have any good choices. But if we could give people uh, something closer to a, uh, an, an array of choices, a menu of choices that are sort of equal in their feasibility... Uh, I think we could see some wonderful changes at low cost quite quickly. And I think high tech could actually contribute to that. Um, uh, I mean, one possibility is what if uh, a fraction of the toll that is now seamlessly collected from a moving vehicle uh, without any interruption to to the driver at all, what if a fraction of that toll went to all the other modes of transport on the logic that right now that driver has no choice, and therefore uh, the, there is a a need to ensure that people do have a choice, and those funds could be, you know, if if ten percent of the toll went to, perhaps even the driver could choose. The driver could choose. Uh, oh, I want all. I want that ten percent fraction to go just to bikes or just to transit. Um, you know, that would be restoring choice to people and technology could be part of it. Because one of the reasons why we overbuilt roads is that, you know, the excuse was it's not practical to charge people for their road use uh, by the actual cost of each mile they're driving. That would require, say, a toll booth on every mile of road that, and everybody would have to stop and get coins out of their pocket to pay the toll. And therefore, we're going to go with the gas tax instead. And the gas tax was this incredibly clumsy mm. and stupid low-tech way to create a funnel of money for roads that became a self-perpetuating treadmill of road building. Well, technology can let us undo that. So I'm being a high-tech f- fan here and saying, why don't we uh, you know, charge people and then put that money into giving people choices? Do you see any... Because you, you mentioned many times in, in both books uh, how the automakers basically got everybody else to pay for, for their infrastructure. You know, society paid, governments paid on, on their behalf. Do you see um, that happening with autonomous vehicles? Because if we are going to have autonomous vehicles and we know that the technology they've currently got 
aren't going to be sufficient. They're going to have to have a remodeling of the streets, which we're going to have to pay for at the end of the day. It won't be the automakers and never has been the automakers. And it's never been the the, the users, the, the, the motorists either. It's always been society as a whole. Do you see, in, in, for instance, in the latest Biden's infrastructure bill, you know, how much of that is actually going to subsidizing all of these tech dreams? Well, I can't speak very specifically about Biden's infrastructure bill because I have some homework to do to get better acquainted with the details. I only have the headline level information about it. But what I can say is absolutely the, the costs uh, entailed in accommodating and enabling um, autonomous and other highly automated vehicles on the roads has already been getting picked up by the U.S. taxpayer in a big way. Um, And this goes across uh, parties and administrations. Uh, At the end of the Obama administration, there was a uh, a smart cities competition where one U.S. city got an enormous amount of money to promote um, uh, mobility, uh, sustainable mobility. I worked on Richmond, Virginia's entry into that competition, and it was all about electric bikes and transit. And, you know, we were certainly not even finalists. The winner, which I believe was Columbus, Ohio, was going for all uh, automated vehicles and driving. And under the, uh, the Trump mm. administration, we saw more of the same. Uh, I heard the administrator of the Federal Highway Administration speak to an audience at the uh, um, Autonomous Vehicles Symposium in Orlando, Florida. And she said, uh, autonomous vehicles are coming and it's our job in the Federal Highway Administration to help it happen. And she announced large sums of money for that. And uh, without even checking, I think we can be certain that there are substantial public funds from USDOT, even under Mayor Pete, for um, uh, high-tech autonomous vehicle um, R&D and infrastructure development. Um, So yeah, these interest groups, these uh, trade associations and lobbies are simply too powerful for that not to happen. So Motordom Mark II? Yes, I think we still have Motordom. And in fact, the Motordom Club has expanded to include tech companies. Peter, as always, uh, it has been fascinating. Uh, your book was excellent. I, I was kindly asked to, to write a blurb for it. That's why I got an early copy in which I, I hope I was as glowing as I, I ought to be, um, because it was a, a fantastic book and a very, very good follow-up to, to, to fighting traffic, like the, the kind of the next uh, stage. So tell us, when's it going to be available? Where's it going to be available from? Tell us all of that uh, detail, Peter. So the press is Island Press, and Island Press says it will be available October 21st. Um, A nice feature of the book's title is that you won't get a lot of irrelevant hits. If you type in the book's title, Autonorama, uh, it ought to be the first thing that comes up on any search engine. And it will be available through Mm -hmm. essentially all the the book um, channels that people are already using. And that's islandpress.org. Now, where can you um, find more about you? Because you're, you're not on Twitter, are you? No, um, 
I have a uh, an about me page on my department's uh, website. My department being uh, the Department of Engineering and Society at the University of Virginia. Uh, I think if anyone searched just for University of Virginia and Peter Norton, it would probably come up near the at or near the top. See, you're you're proving yourself here to be that luddite <laughs> that we feared. Well, you know, I recently had a friend who's... Your use of social media. Yeah, I, I, I had a, a journalist friend I like very much recently tell me I have to be on Twitter. And then in the next sentence, he said, but I lose an incredible <laughs> amount of time on it, I have to say. So um, I'll, I'll, consider, uh, I'll consider joining the, uh, the Twitter sphere uh, again. But, uh, you know, I have some costs and benefits to, to uh, consider. Yes, I wouldn't in- encourage anybody to do it because it, it is it is can be a time sink, and you do tend to talk around it in circles. But at the end of the day, it is good to 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 like to because I use it the other day, in fact, from from Forbes article, in that I was taken on a, a whole bunch. I don't know why they've adopted me, but a whole bunch of anti low traffic neighborhood folks mm. have adopted me as their bête noir of the moment. <laughs> oh, they, they have many why. but I'm the one at the moment, yeah. which they're, 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 they're piling in on me. And so I try and when, when I take them on, you know, it's like, this is not radical. You know, a, a low traffic neighborhood is not radical. You know, the Romans had low traffic neighborhoods uh, 600 years ago. The York Minster had low, these are bollards. These are not, you know, throughout history we've had, you know, motor uh, carriages uh, are restricted. This is not unusual. Yet, all the mass media uh, and these people are seeing this as this incredible new and novel uh, to them dystopian uh, future where you can't go exactly where you want in your motor car. So, I take these people on and I try and move it on. So, because it's not a very radical concept, they consider it radical. I just say, well, let's just ban cars completely <laughs> then. They then yeah. flip their lid. Because that is just something that they haven't. It's like whoa, whoa, whoa. we just thought we we're talking about you know just uh, a few bollards here, and now this this lunatic is talking about banning all cars. Now, of course, I don't have any power in here. I can't do anything about this. But just mentioning that concept that that is your future, and I kind of scare them. I hope just nudges the Overton window for them. Just nudges it mm-hmm. up a little, so they then think that LTNs, or maybe they're not quite as crazy. Or as radical as we think, because this nutter is talking about banning all cars. So maybe we'll just keep quiet. M- mostly, you, 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 you're talking into the wind. You, you, you're not going to convert anybody. People have got their their rigid points of view, and I, I don't know why they even start arguing about it. But there was a glimmer. Mm. There was two or three posters who, when you actually started chiseling away, and you actually showed them because they, they, one particular one came on and was very anti-LTNs. But then um, I started talking about highway removal and how it didn't lead to Carmageddon. It didn't lead to, to congestion everywhere. And then I showed them a photograph of uh, this particular, the poster child of, of highway removal in South Korea and showed them how it, it's now a park today. And their argumentation had been about how uh, all LTNs were shoving um, all the, 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 the heavy traffic onto these major uh, freeways or where there was actually lots of, of houses next to it. But when I showed them, like other countries have done this 
they actually came around to this concept. And, and so if I just got one convert from this argumentation, I would consider that to be a success. So some Overton windows might have been nudged open, but then one person who was anti-LTNs can now think, well, actually, there is a different future because South Korea did that. So that's why I use social media and, 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 and I don't mind spending time arguing with people, even though 90% of them, you're not going to change their minds. You might change 10% of people's minds. And perhaps those 10% could be uh, an important 10%. Well, I am delighted by this story and you've given me something to think about uh, very carefully. I read that piece in Forbes, by the way, um, and I absolutely loved it. And uh, the reason I saw it is that I am on social media. I saw it on Facebook and I recall your uh, sort of attention getting statement uh, in that post, which was the first sentence is ban ban cars or, or approximately that. So I loved the mm. deliberate provocation. Uh, that, that was, that was amusing. And uh, I share, of course I shared the article because uh, it's, it's, it's common sense presented absolutely uh, refreshingly. Um, well, yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I think I'll give it a try. Hmm. Don't blame me, though. <laughs> no, no. If I if I end up, I didn't. I didn't unable, Yeah. If if my, if my career stalls to a halt because I'm constantly tweeting or and so on, um, I'll take full responsibility. And you have that uh, on ZenCaster. Thanks to Peter Norton. There's a photo of him and a link to Autonorama on this show's website at the hyphen spokesman dot com. Next month. I'll have a chat with Lachlan Morton, who, as I'm sure you know, rode this year's Tour de France by himself. But meanwhile, get out there and ride.